Hello and welcome to Tops 10, brought to you by KTXT Radio and the College of Media and Communication at Texas Tech University in beautiful Lubbock. Tops 10 seeks out successful and influential people in politics and government, the many professions, the physical and social sciences, or the arts and humanities, and asks them to reveal their lives, ideas, and ideals through their playlist. Our format is simple. We ask our guests what pieces of music mean the most to them and to tell us the story behind the infatuation. Mr. Derek Ginter is our producer-engineer. I'm David Perlmutter, a professor at and dean of the college, and the originator and sometimes host of Tops 10. Today I have with me Catherine Hayhoe, who is an associate professor in the public administration program at Texas Tech and director of the Climate Science Center at Tech, part of the South Central Climate Science Center. Her research focuses on developing and applying high-resolution climate projections to evaluate the future impacts of climate change on human society and the natural environment. She has published over 70 peer-reviewed publications and served as lead author on key reports for the U.S. Global Change Research Program and the National Academy of Sciences. Now, you got a lot of notoriety recently because you were picked as one of Time Magazine's for 2014 Most Influential People. Yes. Now, when you're picked as a most influential person, do you like your family start listening to you more and obeying you? Do your cats just jump when you call them? That's the secret to cat training. You make it on that list and they're lined up saying, what can I do for you? Did you hold the magazine in front of them and say, see, you know, other people think I'm influential, but I can't get you off the couch. Yeah, that was really the temptation. That's right. Mm-hmm. That's right. But did, it ha- did it have, what, did you know it was coming out? I mean, they had a picture of you there. So did they let you know it was going to appear or was it a surprise? Well, I didn't even know uh, that I was in the running for this. How it happened was back in April, I got an email saying that uh, you are on this list and would you like to come to our gala dinner? But you probably get these emails too. You know, you've made the who's who list of whatever, you've made this list or that list, just contribute $500 and we're happy to put you on the list type of thing. So when I got this email, I who, actually- Who was the email from? Um, it was from somebody who I didn't recognize. It turns out she's one of the editors of Time Magazine. But it didn't like at timemagazine.com or something. Was well, it? it just didn't really register. Oh. I thought it was spam. And okay. so, so I ignored it. So there was also $30 million from the Prince of Lagos attached. Right, yeah, okay. right. That was the next email. Yeah. Yeah. And then, then there was the, you know, dearly beloved Mrs. So-and-so has died and left $10 million in an unregistered Swiss bank account was the next email. So I, I just kind of, you know, thought it was one of those who's who things and ignored it. And then a couple of days later, I got another email saying, we really need to know if you're coming to the dinner. And I thought to myself, well, this sounds a little different than the normal. (laughs) So I actually forwarded the email to our communications office here at Tech, and I said, could you just check on this? Because this actually sounds like it might be legitimate. And about an hour later, they called back and they said, yes, it is real. Um, And so that was when I realized that I was on this list, and it it was a big surprise. So that was about a week before the actual dinner, and I was actually giving a lecture at Bowling Green University that night of the dinner. So I had to call them up really quickly, ask if we could reschedule for the night before, which they very kindly did, and then, you know, rearrange all the travel to make it to New York. Now, when you're picked to be one of Time's most influential people... How are they measuring that? I mean, did they tell you about what, what the criteria were? were you, you were, I assume you were nominated by somebody or, or, or somebody mm-hmm. passed on that this, this person is having a strong impact, not only in their field, but maybe widely. How do you think that they picked you? I was nominated by their environment reporter who I think, I mean, I feel like I was nominated almost as a, as a symbol of the fact that this issue of climate change is becoming increasingly 
uh, more urgent. And we are seeing the impacts now today all around us. It's no longer a future issue and it's no longer a distant issue in space either. It's right here, right now. Not only that, but we're, we're seeing the urgency of the science, the urgency of the impacts, but we're also seeing many non-traditional messengers emerge talking about how important it is that we act on this issue. So I think that in picking me, they were really picking me almost as a symbol of both the science as well as the idea that there are people saying we have to do something about this that aren't just the traditional green groups, you know, the traditional tree huggers. And so I spend a lot of my time speaking to conservative communities and faith communities from that perspective, saying, if we believe that God created the world, then we should be doing something about it. Um, if we believe it's good to conserve, then we should be conserving our resources instead of wasting them. Uh, so that's kind of where that came from. I think that's a, a real key to understanding your work, to that, at least that what I've been able to read of the non-scientific publications that you've had and, and the quotes that have been attributed to you, is that um, my feeling is that climate science, because I teach political communication, climate science is one of those issues where a lot of people have found another hobby horse to ride, in, uh, slamming into the, the opposition, and you wonder how many people are actually interested in getting something done or just want to be able to attack somebody else with with another another weapon but you're reaching out and saying that we can have conversations that result in in action without necessarily pointing a finger of blame or saying I'm I'm smarter than you. Mhm. I completely agree with you. I mean, climate change has become such a political issue to the point where nowadays if you are X, you know, if you are a Republican or if you're a conservative or if you're whatever, it's almost like a statement of faith, an article of belief that you can't say climate change is real. The reality of it is, is that it's about thermometers and sea level rise. It's not about what political uh, party we adhere to. And so what I try to tell people is we can still be exactly who we are. We don't have to turn into somebody else in order to care about climate change. If we're human, if we live on this planet, if we want a healthy economy and a good life for ourselves and our kids, then those are the values that we need to care about climate change. And most of us have those values already. Well, you listed as your first song, and maybe that there's a connection here, How Great Thou Art. Mm -hmm. Now, I remember... Um, a long time ago, I read uh, Kipling's poem, the, the Glory of the Garden. And uh, it ends, and I'm not quoting correctly here, you know, um, every gardener knows that the best gardens are only accomplished on your knees. <laughs> and he was trying to make a parallel between the garden of the Lord, you know, the earth, mm -hmm. and the work that we're supposed to do on, on the earth. And so when you're reaching out to faith communities, you are saying that, you know, this, that whatever you believe, that this is supposed to be a treasured, exalted place. There's, no, there's nothing in the scriptures that says, you know, destroy and trash everything around you. There, that, that there's no scriptural basis for pollution. Right? Yes. In fact, there's actually a verse in Revelation that talks about how God will destroy those who destroy the earth. <laughs> so We can only hope. All right. So how great they are. How did you first hear that sign? Well... These songs are, are really in chronological order. And How Great Thou Art um, expresses how from an early age, from, from childhood, I was taught that faith and science go hand in hand. Um, my dad is a science educator. And I was brought up with was the idea. Was he a high school or college? He was originally a high school teacher, and then he was the science coordinator for the whole board of education. And now he's actually a professor um, teaching teachers how to teach science. Great. So 
I grew up with the idea that science was, first of all, the funnest and most interesting and coolest thing in the world. And then with also with the idea that in studying the world around us and the universe and the earth, we were actually studying what God was thinking when he set this whole thing up to begin with. And so for me, one of my earliest childhood memories is my dad at the piano. Not only a scientist and educator, he loved to play the piano and sing too. He'd be at the piano playing How Great Thou Art and singing at the top of his lungs how that song expressed the wonder and the awe that we have when we look at the world and the universe around us that God has created. Lord, my God, when I an awesome wonder consider all the worlds thy hands have made, I see. about the origins of music and the origins of mathematics being somewhat similar. That is, a lot of times the world's best musicians uh, tend to have strong mathematical skills as well. 
Um, I was reading recently that this meme that that everybody who practices for 10,000 hours becomes very skilled at something was wrong, and that you know the, the, what the research actually shows is that the truly best at things are like 25,000 hours, oh. and, and then also they're very talented. And so there's a question about music then that, like science, a lot of people don't go into science, especially a lot of girls, mm -hmm. especially a lot of uh, minorities, because they're told it's too hard. Or, or it is, at first, seems too hard. Or maybe it's taught too hard at first. You, you were talking about science being super fun. Mm -hmm. What did your dad do to convince you science was super fun that we're not doing for so many other kinds of kids? I think, first of all, starting really young. You know, if you have kids and you have kids who are three or four or five or six, that's the age at which they're just so enthusiastic and so excited about stuff. Whatever we're excited about, they'll be excited about too. So if we kind of roll our eyes when science or math comes up and we're like, oh, this stuff's really boring, but you'll have to learn about it when you're older, then they already have that attitude in them of this is something that's really boring that I'm just going to have to suffer through when I get to high school. Whereas for me, I mean, one of my earliest memories is being able to stay out late at night. It's probably about nine o'clock at night. But when you're four years old, that seems like, you know, the middle of the night. My dad took me out to a park and we laid on a blanket and we looked up and he taught me how to find the galaxy Andromeda with binoculars. And that was just presented as the most ultimate treat that I could have. And so, of course, I thought it was the most ultimate treat. And so that's why originally when I started studying science, I was studying astronomy because to me that was one of the first things I learned that was just so exciting. The fact that we can actually, using science, understand what's happening not just outside of our solar system, but outside of our galaxy. So when you talk about science in your do you go to high schools do you do you talk to non-scientists and non-college students besides reporters i mean how do you reach out to the public i mean when you say you go talk to i mean do you go at a meeting you're invited or how exactly do you do your engagement and outreach by invitation yeah. i never go places where i'm not not, invited. not on the street you know, no. a big sign saying you know <laughs> Believe in science? Global warming is coming. Yeah. <laughs> no, 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 I don't do yeah. that. Um, I, I do a lot of talking to college students. Um, I do a lot of talking just in the public forum. I have to say some of the smartest groups of people I talk to, though, are elementary school kids. You, you might think that if I'm giving a talk about an issue like climate change that I have to kind of, you know, dumb it down a bit. But no. I mean, elementary kids are some of the smartest people we have. They're so engaged. They're so on top of things. And they know a lot more today than we knew when we were their age about current issues. So the kids, I guess they haven't been taught what, that something isn't fun and they haven't been caught not to ask a, a, mm -hmm. a question. That's right. Yeah. Your next song is a little bit of a, a departure, but uh, probably when people talk about the interplay of science, math, and music, the the first name that comes up is Bach, and you <laughs> have uh, is I, and I, I pre prelude number two in C minor. Yes. From, from Bach. Now, when did you first hear that song? Well, music. <laughs> <laughs> not only not only was. Um, was science a big part of growing up, but music was also a big part of my childhood growing up. And like you just said, you referred to the idea that we have to spend 10,000 hours on something before we're an expert, and then you said that actually now they're saying more like 25,000 hours, which is very depressing when we hear that. But I feel like piano was probably the first thing that I actually spent enough time at to actually be an expert at. And so it was the first thing that I actually felt like I have a really solid grasp of this field and I've worked really hard at it and I feel like I've actually succeeded in the goals that I set. And so this piece was kind of the culmination of where I got to in my piano. And I just remember being, as a, as a teenager, I guess, then being so proud of myself, feeling like I've actually worked for this and I've actually accomplished this. So often we feel like 
we have to kind of help our kids over the hurdles and the barriers that they encounter in life. But something as difficult as piano is a great way to actually encourage kids to develop their own abilities to challenge themselves and to excel at something that is really pretty hard. Now, you grew up, you're a foreigner. You grew up in the the land of the north there, Canada. I am an alien. Which part of Canada? I grew up in the city of Toronto, but in the summers, we would spend all of our time up north. And so that actually relates. It's hard hard for Mm -hmm. us southerners to to picture, like, in Canada, (laughs) people go north. Right. 90% of the population lives within 200 kilometers of the border with the U.S., because they love us so much. Um, mostly because it's a bit warmer okay. there. <laughs> and you also, yeah, actually you do get the TV stations from the U.S. Oh. that way, yes, and the radio. Um, but in the summers, we would spend our time going up north, and that was just really the ideal way to grow up because, you know, from sunset to sundown, we were outside all of the time. Half the time, our parents didn't even know where we were. We'd be out on the lake so in a canoe. So today, your parents would be in prison for abandonment, <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, leaving your children alone. Yes, you know, you know, it's it's... It's become a, n- a normal thing now that parents get in trouble for their kids being unsupervised. It's true, uh, but if yeah. you if you own the property and if they're on the property you own, does that count? Well, were there polar bears wandering around this property? Or? No, but there were brown bears. Okay. Um, also raccoons, lots of snakes and frogs. A- again, as a modern parent, I ha- I'm, I'm having trouble visualizing my uh, my kids unsupervised near brown bears, but... Maybe it's a Canadian thing, you know, right? It's, yeah, it's true. We're taught not to climb a tree if you see a bear coming, because the bear can climb faster than you. But always have a fat friend who runs slower? Is that, that's is that that's exactly it. You yeah. only have to run faster than the person beside that, you, so make sure you have a younger cousin right. with you at all times. So you were able to observe in these summers nature. You were able to see the, wor- the, the world in action. Did, did, you, did you get an inkling... I guess from your father also of something called the scientific method that it was that that you could observe nature not just looking around but that you could notice patterns of behavior and and, and patterns of 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 appearance and that there these patterns might have explanations to them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. One of the first things we learned living outside every day in the summer was how you could predict the next day's weather from the direction of the wind and the color of the sky that night. Um, every summer, my dad had a project for us. One, one summer, it would be the wildflowers of Ontario, and we would have a book, and we would have to find as many of those flowers as we could. Another summer, it would be identifying bird calls and categorizing the birds into the different families according to what they ate and where they nested and what they sounded like. So I think that so often today, um, we are not able to spend that time outdoors where we don't have an agenda we don't have a goal to accomplish it's just we're outside and we're learning to understand and enjoy the nature that happens all around us
So do you remember like the first scientific insight that you thought was beautiful or that was like, wow, that's just amazing. I mean, I, I guess I mean, besides just observation, but it's like a theory, you know, an explanation of, of something about why something w- worked the way that it did. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. That's exactly what I love so much about science is that it all makes sense. And that when you see a phenomena that is very interesting and challenging, the the fundamental assumption that underlies science is that if we study it hard enough and we gather enough observations and we think about it long enough, we can actually understand why it's happening. And I just think that is so cool. And as you mentioned, it's not just about understanding why something's happening. It's then about using that information to then be able to predict what would happen under different circumstances. So, for example, what I think is so amazing is that we have been able to do that not just for decades, but for centuries. So, for example, when the astronomer Herschel discovered the planet Uranus, or Uranus, there's really no good way to pronounce that planet. You kind of screwed whichever way you pronounce it. Anyways, when he discovered that planet... I I know what the elementary school kids would answer that question with. I know, I know. You, you just you just can't win. Anyways, when he discovered the planet that begins with you, um, another astronomer said, well, from the wobble in its orbit, there must be another planet perturbing its orbit. And they actually figured out where that other planet should be years before they discovered the planet Pluto, which has now been demoted from a planet. Um, another but There was mom- something with a gravitational field, not that... Yeah, there was something out there. Astronomically, not that far away. Yes, and but know. they deduced it from science without actually having seen it. Similarly, um, back in the 1930s and the 1940s, they were studying how the universe began. And they said, well, if it really began from this Big Bang, then we should see this thing called cosmic background radiation at about four degrees Kelvin which is very, very, very cold, but it's not zero. And so it took about 20 years before people actually measured that background radiation just about at the temperature that it was predicted it would be from science. And that is what amazes me about science is that we can develop this amazing understanding of things far beyond our, our range and our scope just because it all works the same way. Now, when you were growing up in, in Canada, it, it sounded pretty uh, idyllic during the, the summers there. And you, you talked to, in some of the material you sent me about uh, canoeing with your, your younger cousins. And did you have a, a religious sense about the cosmos at, at that time? I mean, did you, did w- w- in your family, was there a belief that the order was designed or imposed rather than naturally arising or that there was no contradiction between the two? What, what was your sense of, of, of who was in charge of the universe? <laughs> um, well, you know, when you're running around with your cousins swimming in the lake and catching fish and stuff like that, you're not, you know, stopping to fold your hands and say a prayer at the same time most of the time. But um, ever since an early age, um, I was I was kind of taught almost through osmosis that science and nature were God's expression. So, for example, we have the Bible, which is God's written word, but we also have the created world, which is just as much an expression of who God is. And so by studying what what the atmosphere does to our planet or how the ocean currents move around or even how the universe was formed and how the galaxies came into being, we are studying the physical laws that were set up and designed by, by a creator. And that was what I had learned from an early age. Early age and the song that you pick to sort of typify that time was appropriately Tom Stompin' Tom Con- Connors' Real Canadian Girl. She loves the way it feels Driving snowmobiles And laughing at her dates 
when they don't know how to skate. She knows her hockey games and the players of the world. She's an all-Acadian northern lady and a real Canadian girl. She's from the Miramichi by the old Atlantic Sea. But like the rolling tides, she travels far and wide. So fond of the great outdoors with a glowing heart a twirl. She's an all-Acadian northern lady and a real Canadian girl. She's a real Canadian girl, a real Canadian girl. She's an all-Acadian northern lady and a real Canadian girl. She'll brave the Yukon nights and dance to the northern lights. Then she's off to ski in the mountains of BC. In the summer she'll play ball, in the winter time she'll curl. She's an all-Acadian northern lady and a real Canadian girl. From the river of St. John to the old Saskatchewan, up along the caribou, she'll paddle her canoe. She loves the bears and birds and every little squirrel. She's an all-Acadian northern lady and a real Canadian girl. She's a real Canadian girl, a real Canadian girl. She's an all-Acadian northern lady and a real Canadian girl. Now when you see her play, she'll take your breath away. Bathing in the sun, or swimming just for fun. And if some lucky guy should land this precious pearl, she's an all-Acadian northern lady and a real Canadian girl. She loves the way it feels, driving snowmobiles, and laughing at her dates when they don't know how to skate. She knows her hockey games and the players of the world. She's an all-Acadian northern lady and a real Canadian girl. She's a real Canadian girl, a real Canadian girl. She's an all-Acadian northern lady and a real Canadian girl. Well, I guess that prompts the question. I remember the the famous quote from uh, the science. I guess he was a chemist, Haldane, who was asked, you know, what can you tell about God from nature? And his answer was, God has an inordinate fondness for beetles, because there were, <laughs> there were so many species of beetle. I mean, there's like seven hundred thousand species of, of, of beetle. But what can we tell about the nature of of I mean, we can tell through scientific theories about the nature of the universe, although I guess all of that logic and, and sense breaks down at the subatomic level as far as, as, far as I know. So it, 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 crazy things happen when you go below the level of the atom. Uh, yes. You know, what, what, what was it? Einstein said spooky action in the distance, you know, quantum mechanics or something like that. But, but above the level of the atom, do you think that we can say something about the nature of God from nature? What, what would it be? Well, um, What's your top above and below the level of yeah. the atom, I think that the number one thing we can see is complexity and beauty. I think that as humans, we're always wanting to break things down to the lowest common denominator, to simplify things, to put pigeonhole, to um, stereotype, to try to make things very simple. And while there are certainly some beautiful simplicities in nature, at the same time, the complexity and the beauty is just overwhelming. Um, the 
inventiveness, the imagination, that every time you figure something out, you're like, wow, now that is different. And that is really cool. That is the reaction of most of the scientists that I've worked with. Um, whatever our spirituality is, we react to scientific discoveries in the same way. That is so cool. <laughs> do, do you think that um, we can impart on students that coolness better than, than we are doing right now? I definitely think that we can, but at the same time, we have to acknowledge that if you're going to make a career out of something, you have to understand the basics and the fundamentals. And there's no denying the fact that whatever field we're in, humanities, social sciences, physical sciences, there is a certain amount of time we have to put in, kind of like the piano. So with the piano, when you get to the point where you can play an amazingly beautiful piece and you, it sounds perfect and you enjoy playing it, well, you've already put in a hundred hours of painstakingly note by note figuring out the finger placements and memorizing the piece. And so to really enjoy something at a top level, whether it's any type of sport, any type of profession, we have to put in the time to learn. And sometimes that practicing isn't isn't always that fun. But by presenting the goal, by having that goal in mind, by having the um, exciting nature of what we're doing in mind, that is what helps us to do it. So for example, you know, if, if you're training for the Olympics, that is a lot, years and years of just swimming to one end of the pool, turning around and swimming back to the other end. There's no I think way. Michael Phelps, uh, 10,000 <laughs> laps a day and... 100,000 calories or something like that that he has to ingest. So he basically uh, you know. has like a, a jar of pasta sitting for him at the end of every lap. Uh, you know, infusion, you know, butter infusion. I, I, although I probably bet it's reasonably healthy food. But but so... Mm-hmm. So, so yeah, so the yeah. point is that... In, but what, it, what are they inspired by? They're inspired by the goal of getting to the Olympics because we all know how cool that is. So in the same way, no matter what our goal is, we have to put in that time and nobody can say 10,000 laps are going to be fun. But by having that goal in mind that we know is just going to be so fun. That's what keeps us going. I'm intrigued by your pointing out about complexity. Now, Mm -hmm. I I think there's a cumulative evidence now that both in putting off aging of the brain and also in stimulating children, the more complex, the more challenging the the mental environment, the better it is. Basically, the more, you know, neurons we're building for the future or keeping the, the ones that, that we have. And, you know, that's why it's it's so important for children to start learning music early, start learning other languages early. And we certainly have a school system that doesn't, you know, encourage that. I mean, I, I've, we've been in two school systems now where languages are sort of, well, when you get to high school, you'll start learning a language when it should be, they should be learning Chinese and, and Spanish mm-hmm. when they're three. Oh, you yeah. know, that's the time to start learning mm-hmm. uh, these things. My, my Chinese friends talk about when, you know, the only way they could learn Chinese was they sat there with these little character books and they would, you know, do every single character of the 10,000 characters they need to learn a hundred times. And I was thinking, well, you got to start early to do that. You can't just like when you're 40, say, which I tried to do and failed, uh, just say, you know, I think I'll learn this this incredibly uh-huh. complex thing. So complexity is good for humans. The yes. more complexity we have, I mean, we're, we're complexity reducing animals. We like to reduce things to, you know, mm-hmm. sim- simple, simple good and evil and, you know, know, bad and good. Uh, but complexity, to take take complexity and you can avoid the doctor, right? I mean, <laughs> Yeah, well, and that actually applies to nature too, because we reduce our environment to straight lines. Our furniture, our walls, our houses are very 
very not, not our cats. Simple, not our cats. Yeah. That's why pets are good. Yeah. And that's part of why people say spending time in nature is good because your spatial environment is actually complex. Things are not straight lines. Things are not organized. You actually have to pick your way around things. And so that is part of the complexity that is good for us, not just of the mind, but actually of the of the physical surroundings too. So your parents uh, practiced what they preached. They raised you in Canada until age nine. And then they said, now what, what place on earth is the most unlike Canada? And they went to the other Columbia, the South America Columbia. That's right. How did that happen? Well, my dad uh, loves to climb mountains. And so he went down and visited some friends who were living and working in Colombia as missionaries and just fell in love with the country. Not just the mountains, but the people and everything there. Now, this was back in the 80s when, you know, we didn't have long distance phone plans. Wasn't we didn't like have a the internet. Drug war and all there, there was that too, yes. And so he came home and he said, I really want to move to Columbia. And my mother said, Are you crazy? And he said, Well, I really want to, but we're just going to, you know, think about it. So she thought about it for two years. And <laughs> after two years, she said, Fine, we'll do it. So when I was nine years old, um, we packed up the family and moved down to Columbia, South America, where my dad taught at a school there, um, worked with a local church, and we spent our weekends exploring that country. That's that's truly really incredible. In, in terms of, and and did did he poll the younger members? How many how, how many siblings did you have? I have two sisters. We okay. were not polled, and that was kind yeah. of an issue because you was, know was it like you know, you got on a plane one day and then you noticed that there were no more black bears and there were. Narco gorillas, you know. But. Yeah, well, well, I remember getting on the plane. I remember looking out the window, and beside us was a plane going to Peru. And I remember seeing all of our carefully labeled boxes. We had the maximum number of boxes, the maximum size, because my mom didn't know what you could get there. So she packed all of her dishware. She packed all of her towels. I remember watching our boxes being loaded onto the plane going to Peru. And I remember pointing out the window saying, aren't those our boxes? And yes, they were our boxes, and it took us three months to get them back. <laughs> so quarantined. Well, they went to Peru, and in those days, it took a while to get things, you know, from Peru back to the states, and then over to Colombia. So the song that you listed for us that uh, is related to this is "Fotografia" by Juanes Fit and Nelly Furtado. Yes, Juanes is a very well-known singer in Colombia, and actually probably here too. And Nelly Furtado is a Canadian singer. So they did this duet together, and I think it really exemplifies the connection between the two countries that I grew up in. Um, this song is specifically about remembering somebody that you've left behind by looking at their photographs, and it reminds me of the many friendships that I left behind in Colombia and also illustrates um, the bridge between those two countries by having somebody from Colombia and somebody from Canada singing the song together. Cada vez que yo me voy, llevo un lado de mi Fotografías para verlas cada vez que tu ausencia me devora entero el corazón y yo no tengo remedio más que amarte y en la distancia te puedo ver cuando tus fotos me siento a ver y en las estrellas tus ojos ven cuando tus fotos me siento a ver cada vez que te busco te vas y 
Cada vez que te llamo no estás Es por eso que debo decir que tú solo en mis fotos estás Cada vez que te busco te vas Y cada vez que te llamo no estás Es por eso que debo decir que tú solo en mis fotos estás Cuando hay un abismo desnudo que se pone entre los dos Yo me valgo del recuerdo Casi turno de tu voz Y de nuevo siento enfermo este corazón Que no le quede remedio más que amarte Y en la distancia te puedo ver Cuando tus fotos me siento a ver y en las estrellas tus ojos ven cuando tus fotos me siento a Cada vez que te busco te vas y cada vez que te llamo no estás Es por eso que debo decir que tú solo en mis fotos estás Cada vez que te busco te vas y cada vez que te llamo no estás Es por eso que debo decir que tú solo en mis fotos estás Did you come back to the United States? Well, when did you uh, to to North America mm -hmm. at, for high school or college? Or? Yeah, I came back for um, a couple of years of high school, and then we went back down again before I went to university. Now, did you know Spanish at all before this flight to? Nowhere? Oh no! I mean, you learn French in Canada. I had not a word of Spanish, and so we we were going to a nominally bilingual school, but in reality, that just meant that you had English and maybe one other subject in English. So the first year, we had a Spanish tutor at the school. I remember, we'd get pulled out during Spanish class to have a tutor. The second year, we just took all the regular classes, and I failed Spanish. And then by the third year, I actually got an A in Spanish. <laughs> so that was real immersion. Um, and it was a unique opportunity that I appreciate now, um, not so much when I was age nine, but now um, just having that opportunity to immerse yourself in a culture and to understand how people live so differently and how happiness is not necessarily measured the way that we measure it here. Um, some of the happiest people I know had houses that were built over out of, you know, tied cardboard boxes and 
every week at the end of the of the week when they earned their salary, they would buy 10 bricks and bring them home. And when they had enough bricks to build a single room, they had a party and they invited everybody to come. I mean, when you have friends who live that way, then coming back here and, oh, I don't have the newest iPhone, you know, it just takes on a whole different meaning and perspective. Absolutely. Your next song is Where the Streets Have No Name, much more uh, famous U2 song. And uh, do, you, do you link now? You went to college uh, where? I went to the University of Toronto, and then I moved right. to the States for graduate school. I went to University of Illinois for graduate school. So was the United States more of a shock and transition than, than Columbia? <laughs> Well, um, that's a great question. I had, growing up, living in Toronto near the border, one of our favorite things to do in high school was cross-border shopping. Because in those days, we didn't have outlet malls in Canada. Um, So I was pretty familiar with Upper State New York. And going to school in Illinois was, in some ways, was, was not that different. But in other ways, it was. I have to say, until I had moved to Illinois, I had, um, I had never met somebody who didn't drink. And I had never met somebody who didn't think climate change was real. And so, no. Now, I w- wait a minute. This is the 80s. Climate 90s. Change. 90s. Yes. Okay. I, I, and I want to go back to climate change in a moment, mm-hmm. but, but um, where the streets have no name, was that in any way related to the, the strangeness of some of the environments that, that you're going in? What, what does that song mean to you? Well, um, this is actually more of a song about high school because during high school is when you really get into music. And so, you know, during high school is a time when you just listen to music nonstop. You're making all these mixtapes. You're calling up your friends saying, hey, turn on the radio. This song is on. And I was doing this both in, in when I lived in Columbia as well as um, when I lived in Canada. And so I loved a lot of different kind of what they called alternative artists at that time. Um, you know, uh, Depeche Mode, The Cure, OMD, Pet Shop Boys. But my favorite band then and still even now is U2. What I love about them is not how they've, not just how they've grown and changed over the years, how they still stay current today, um, even though the Joshua Tree was such a huge hit back in the 80s. But what I also loved was how open they were about their spirituality and about doing more than just making music. So for example, back in the 80s, they spent a lot of time talking and even writing songs about their spiritual journey. Um, when other people were writing songs about cars and girls and, you know, this and that, and wearing their sunglasses at night.
most causes that become popular and they actually experience some level of success have anthems and ballads. Mm -hmm. Where are the climate change anthems and ballads? And why Why? Why are the, oh, the, the many question. people who write social anthems and ballads about other things? Yeah. I mean, where's the Bruce Springsteen global warming song? I mean, yeah. it's, it's interesting with people who will write songs about almost any cause, and I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan, and he's covered... You know, I, it's hard for me to think something he hasn't written a song on. Or Pete Seeger, you know, yeah. he died recently. Neil Young. Neil Young. These people, it's like, you know, there's a grape strike in, in Afghanistan. You know, grape workers are on strike in Afghanistan. They write a song. Yes. And, and I, Can you I, name one? Mm -hmm. Okay, I'm, this, I'm putting you on the spot here. I yeah. want you to name one climate change anthem. Um, I know a lot of small, like not so popular ones, but big ones, no. And I mean, I'm with you because I grew up listening to Bruce Coburn. If I had a rocket launcher, I grew up listening to Neil Young, Gordon Lightfoot, all these, all these great um, people who came out of the '70s. Back then, it was it was actually cool to write about these things. But we've gone through a phase where we're very me focused. We're not so much focused on what's going on, on the other side of the world, whether things are right or wrong. We're focused on what my life is like and how terrible I feel because somebody left me, or how I feel alone right now. But if I got such and such, I'd feel better. Um, and that's again why I really love you two so much is because. Even even today, um, I think Bono is a tremendous inspiration in terms of how you can use what you do to care for other people. But at the same time, I feel that that Bono and many other people have fallen prey to this idea that we have a list of things we care about, and climate change is on that list, but maybe down around number eight or nine or ten. So you know, world hunger is number one, and health is number two, and water is number three, and education is number four, and empowering women is number five, and then climate change is kind of down, you know, eight, nine, ten. Here's the issue, though: climate change is not on that list. Climate change is interacting with and exacerbating all the issues we already care about today. So if you care about health, we can't address health issues if we leave climate change out of the picture. If we care about access to clean water for people, we will. our plans to ensure clean water will not succeed if we leave climate change out of the picture. Even our plans for education or development or things like that, literally, it's like throwing money into a bucket with a hole in the bottom. That hole is climate change, and it's getting bigger and bigger over time. Well, you bring up the, the issue of, of the situ situation people find themselves immediately in. We're very lucky. We're first world people. You know, we have, uh, we have you know, a house. You know, we have cars. We have, we have a, a security blanket mm -hmm. called tenure. Yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, you know, we're, we're the apex of, of the economic pyramid to some extent, that the, the situation you and I and, and, and a number of people in this world are. Um, and we can't seem to mobilize to care about mm -hmm. we're, we're climate change being something, you know, that still seems very theoretical or, or projectional to a lot of people. Now, your average – I was reading about this about uh, the, where the Ebola outbreaks are. Mm -hmm. And a lot of these Ebola outbreaks are often due to eating bush meat, you know, basically monkeys and handling blood, you know, from wild animals and things like that can help spread disease. But coming in and saying, okay, as a lot of these African countries have done, uh, spurred by the West, okay, we can't – you can't – we're going to ban this, right? Well, then the people are starving. <laughs> exactly. And so then they could become ravaging the forest for food. And then they encounter the same animals that, you know, they're being bitten by the same monkey. I mean, it, it, a lot of times, talk about complexity. There's, mm -hmm. there's a, anybody who works in aid agencies has told me there is a maddeningly complex 
a world of unintended consequences. Yes. Uh, I mean, you know, you, you, you build a well for the town so the town's women don't have to walk 10 miles to go get water and carry buckets on their head. This is a true case study. And it ends up hurting the town because the women stay home and there's, there's more domestic conflict and, and the men feel disempowered economically and, and more social trouble is caused by the well than the well saw. I mean, there's just so many unintended consequences of the good intentions of missionaries, of mm-hmm. government age agencies. How can we guard ourselves against unintended consequences of whatever we're supposed to do about climate change? That That is the toughest issue. And, and nowadays, like I was just saying, failure to incorporate climate change into our future planning is one of those unintended consequences. Like we could plan this great agricultural system, for example, for a region in Africa. But if we fail to account how temperature is rising and how rainfall patterns are shifting, it could completely fail and we'll end up worse than we started off. So with climate change, one of the solutions that people have proposed is let's artificially reduce the temperature of the earth by shooting all of these soot and dust particles up into the atmosphere. It's called something called geoengineering, engineering the planet, the only planet we how about, have. How about a, a thermonuclear <laughs> device right in the middle of one of those Icelandic volcanoes? Wouldn't they just do the trick much faster, a lot cheaper? <laughs> um, I mean, the Icelanders It's a little more checked. uncertain. Yeah, they might, you, but know. Then they, you know. They're a small country. Mm, you know, yeah. You know, yeah. So. Anyway, so, yeah. so that's an example of something that people say, well, let's do it. Well, here's the problem, though. You put all this stuff up in the atmosphere. It cuts out the amount of sunlight coming in, which affects our plants, which affects our yields, which affects the food that we have. So there's a lot of solutions to climate change that um, ha- have some potential unintended consequences, like a drug automatically just you know, administering a drug to the entire population of the earth without knowing what the side effects are. So that's why I think it's so important to think of this issue as an issue of being conservative, conserving our resources, using less energy, transitioning to alternative energy sources that we know don't pollute our air and don't pollute our water, doing things that make sense rather than these radical one-shot wonder solutions that could, you know, have completely unintended consequences. Absolutely. If I had a million dollars by the bare naked ladies. Now you were attending the University of Toronto, which is in down I've actually visited downtown Toronto. Mm-hmm. And uh, you were talking about uh, they had a, a song contest there to win a $1 million They song did. Contest. The local radio station, yeah. CFNY, that played all our alternative music, they had this contest where they would give a million-dollar recording contract to the band who won. So this local band called Bare Naked Ladies, whose lead singer went to school with my cousin and the drummer lives across the street from my sister, they wrote this song called If I Had a Million Dollars, and they entered it in this competition. And that was while I was in, in university. And I remember going to one of their concerts in, in our cafeteria and thinking, oh, these guys are pretty good, but, you know, they're local. How far can a local person go? Well, nowadays, everybody's heard of the Bare Naked Ladies. It turns out local people can go pretty far. So I just love the fact that, um, you know, they're a group that you knew back when and they've gone so far. And I feel like they're really an inspiration to show how, you know, even if you did go to school with somebody's cousin and performed in a cafeteria at one time in your life, that doesn't mean that you can't go places. In fact, that might be the first place that you do go. If I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Well, I'd buy you a house I would buy you a house And if I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars Buy you furniture for your house Maybe an ice Chesterfield or an ottoman And if I had a million dollars If I had a million dollars 
buy you a K-car, a nice, reliant automobile. And if I had a million dollars, I'd buy your Let's pretend that y- you had political influence, and, uh, and that <laughs> and that you know mm-hmm. there's a joint session of Congress mm-hmm. and the president, and they're eagerly hearing, t- want to hear your advice. What can be done? I mean, I, I've, I, I, I'm not an expert, but I do read up. I, I'm, I'm fascinated by stories about uh, climate change. I always read science fiction a lot when I was a kid. And I mm-hmm. love apocalyptic fiction, you know, and the ways the world can blow itself up I'm, some of the stuff i'm reading now about the the methane buildup basically we should be building a space arc shouldn't we i mean is there is, is there something we can actually do or are we just gonna you know 40 years that's about what we have you, you tell I, I visited a friend uh-huh. in miami recently uh-huh. and i was going you know this is all really interesting but it's all going to be gone right i mean within 40 or 50 years miami is one of the places that's most in trouble because they're so low-lying and um, the city of miami actually brought people in from the netherlands to talk about building dikes to protect them from sea level but the problem is is miami is built on this porous limestone so if you built a wall a dike the water would just go right under and up the other side so yeah, so Miami has has some problems, but I I mean I am an optimist, which is hard to be if you're in climate science. Um, I believe that there is there is still a lot we can do right now. Um, it's kind of like if you're a smoker, it's like there's no one magic number of cigarettes that if you smoke up to that level, you're okay. But if you smoke one more, then you're screwed. You know, it's like the fir- the more cigarettes we smoke, the greater the risk of developing lung cancer, and we know that instinctively. With climate change, the more carbon we produce, the greater the risk of really dangerous and serious consequences. Even though there's no one magic silver bullet, one technological silver bullet that will solve the whole problem, there is one thing we can do. And that is we can actually put a real price on carbon. Right now, the price we are paying for carbon, and by that I mean the price we're paying for the gas we put in our cars, the electricity that we turn on when we flip the switch, um, and all the industry and manufacturing that uses coal and gas and oil. The real price we're paying is grossly underweighted. We are not paying for the fact that people downstream of coal mining don't have clean water anymore because it's polluted from the mines. We are not paying for the asthma, the respiratory disease, the health costs, and the lost work days from people who have to breathe in all the stuff coming out of these coal-fired power plants. From that perspective alone, we shouldn't be using coal. Leave climate change out of the picture. Just because of health, we shouldn't be using it. When we certainly are not paying for the fact that 200 native villages in, in Alaska have to immediately relocate because the ground under their feet is crumbling and melting and falling away. We're not paying for the fact that the risk of severe heat waves that are killing not just hundreds but thousands of people are increasing, or that hurricanes in the Gulf of Mexico are getting stronger, or that um, drought patterns are shifting or flooding's becoming more common. Billion-dollar disasters are increasing in frequency. We are not paying for these things when we use our energy. And here's the thing, if we were paying for them, we would be switching to different sources of energy much more quickly because they'd be much more affordable. 
So we actually have a, um, what's the word, a skewed market. We don't have a free market. We have a market where old, dirty fossil fuels are artificially much cheaper than they should be, and clean, renewable sources of energy are artificially much more expensive than they should be when you consider the big picture, what economists call the externalities. My first reaction is, as somebody who t- mm-hmm. you know, studies political communication, is that that's not going to happen in the sense that, I mean, China is just not going to, I mean, China, which is the absolute, you know, case study of what happens when you let an economy take complete precedence over all environmental concerns. Mm-hmm. You know, m- Chinese people don't trust their own the food over there. They, a lot of China, they won't buy food. You know, they they, they, uh, they when they come to visit their relatives in the United States, they they buy you know milk, uh, baby milk powder. You know, I mean. Uh, a lot. There's a lot of Chinese people who are saying, "Geez, you know, our our skies are black 100 days a year mm-hmm. in, in in Beijing or something like that." Um, but uh, I, I was reading an article by Charles C. Mann about coal, about him saying that if we're not going to be able to turn off coal, is there a technology to create basically reverse factories to say, let's take it out of the atmosphere and you know turn it into building blocks or something, something something like that? Is is that is that? I mean. Obviously, you're you're suggesting something that would have much more of a direct impact. But are are there technological fixes that aren't you know playing with shooting silver threads oh, yeah. into the atmosphere that we might be looking at? Um, I certainly hope so because I would see that as a last resort, shooting the dust into the atmosphere. First of all, though, let me address the issue of China. I would say that probably the number one question I get when I talk to people today is, that all sounds great, but what about China? Because we all have this image fixed in our heads. And I mean, I've been to Beijing, you probably have too, where you you, you can't even breathe the air. I mean, your lungs hurt breathing in the air in that city. So we just have this image of China as this incredibly dirty, polluted, backwards thinking country that will always depend on coal and that will always be basically dragging the rest of the planet back to the you know industrial age. Here's what we don't realize. China is number one in the world for wind. China is number two in the world for solar. China does not look good now, but in 10 years, they're gonna make us embarrassed because they are setting in place the building blocks. They know what coal does, they're not idiots. They have very smart people over there. They know what coal does, they know what impact it's having on their population, and they know where they have to go, and they are actually setting that infrastructure in place much quicker than the US. So the US actually is already at the point where we are playing catch up with China in terms of our investment in renewable energy. And that's something a lot of people don't know. Well, that's that's a great message. I just say that again as, as somebody who studies political communication, that, that you know we are falling behind, that there's a, a, a wind gap. I'm old enough to remember the missile gap. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, there's a wind gap and there's a solar gap. I, I think, that, again, that's something that maybe people of different political persuasions might uh, might rally uh, around. Yeah. Your next song by R.E.M. is Losing My Religion. And uh, you talk about now your husband is a pastor yeah, yeah he's yeah, a he's yeah. a professor here at tech yeah, yeah. he teaches linguistics but he's also yeah. a pastor and so losing my religion is his song um it's his song for several reasons first of all he's um he went to school in georgia in athens where rem is from so rem is one of his favorite bands but interestingly um his his message as a author and a pastor and a speaker he's written eight books um, with titles like the naked gospel and god without religion and things like that. His message is that relating to God is not about religion, that religion is about rules that have been created by people to bind us. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance, that type of thing. Um, Whereas what God wants with us is a relationship. 
not a bunch of thou shalt's and thou shalt nots. So the church that he pastors here in Lubbock is actually called Church Without Religion, which is a funny name. A lot of people kind of, if they see somebody with a shirt on, they stop them in the grocery store and they say, is that a church of atheists? <laughs> but it's not. It's an idea that it's a church um, without all of those thou shalt's and thou shalt nots that we as humans, again, to try to simplify our faith. We've put these rules on our faith to try to simplify it. Like, I will be a good Christian if I do these 10 things. But that's not what it's about. It's about a complex God who isn't satisfied with, if you do X and Y and Z, then we're good. But if you do A, then you're at problems. So um, this Losing My Religion song is really about how he, um, I, I would say his journey has been about losing his religion and gaining his faith in God and then sharing that with others here in Lubbock and around the country and around the world. At, at his church, they do live streaming on Sunday and they have two or three times more people watching from around the world, from South Africa, from Australia, from the UK, from Canada, than they do actually have here in Lubbock. Just a dream That was just a dream That 
Now you are in Texas. Now how long have you been at Texas Tech? We've been here for eight years. And you came, you were at Illinois for your PhD mm-hmm. studies, and then you did a postdoc, or did you get a job somewhere else first? Or? No, uh, my husband got a profess- uh, position as a professor at Notre Dame, um, right out of graduate school. He got an endowed chair position at Notre Dame, and I was doing consulting at that time, and I was also a principal investigator on a research center at the University of Chicago, which is fairly close to Notre Dame. So we were there for five years. And we got to the point where we just kind of felt, you know, we want to be somewhere else. We want to be somewhere where we can both be at the same school. We want to be somewhere where we don't get broken into every year, which is what was happening at Notre Dame. The first year we came home from Thanksgiving and our door was swinging wide open and there was a police card on the door that said, call me. We walked in the house and pretty much everything was gone. We've been cleaned out and that was just the beginning. It just kind of went from there. We had phone tapping incidents. We had uh, multiple break-ins. The last straw was when... I was in the kitchen. I was expecting a friend to come over, and it was about 2 in the afternoon. And so at about 5 minutes to 2, I walked out, and I just cracked the front door so she could walk in. So I heard the front door creak open, and I turned around, looked down the hallway, and there was this man in the front hall going through my purse. At that point, you know, it had been four years of break-ins and who knows what every year. So at that point, I just lost it, and I chased him down the road screaming at him to give me back my purse. It was a purse I'd bought in in Germany. I didn't really care about the contents. I just wanted the purse back. Most police would caution people against I know, challenging I the intruder in that way without a shotgun. But uh, I know. So, so you had, so you went, you, you went, you told everybody to go to hell, and you went to Texas. Exactly. Yeah. And so uh, my husband actually was the one who who was coming here and who asked if they would be able to accommodate me here. And Texas Tech was very generous in making a place for me originally in geosciences and now more recently in political science. That is that is very exciting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so your next song, very appropriately, is Lyle Love It. That's right, you're not from Texas. Now, what does this song mean to you? Well, uh, I am not a country fan. But during graduate school in Illinois, I had a Korean roommate. And Lyle Love It was one of her favorite artists. <laughs> so, so I completely fell in love with Lyle Love It, even though I didn't like country. And here I was with a Korean roommate playing this music for me. And I think that this song, that's right, you're not from Texas, but Texas wants you anyway, really expresses the welcome that we've received in Texas. You know, I'm not from Texas. I'm from Canada. But people here have just been so welcoming and so accepting. I mean, when, when I moved here, I, at that point, I had realized that there was a lot of people who didn't think climate change was real. So when we were planning to move here, I was I was nervous. I felt a little bit like one of those, you know, those missionaries in the 1800s going to darkest Africa, wondering if they're going to be popped into the stew pot when they arrived. But within a couple of months of arriving here, I started to get invitations to speak to, you know, the university women's group or a church uh, group or a senior citizens home. Because people were curious about climate change. They wanted to know. They had questions. Far far from being popped into the stew pot here in Texas, I felt very welcomed and very encouraged. And honestly, I don't feel that I would be where I am right now and doing the things I'm doing right now if I hadn't moved to Texas. You say you're not from Texas. Man, as if I couldn't tell. You think you pull your boots on right and wear your hat so Supporting me, my laughter As I sure do understand Even Moses got excited When he saw the, the promised land That's right, you're not from Texas That's right, you're not from Texas That's right, you're not from Texas Texas wants you anyway That's right, 
Texas. That's right, you're not from Texas. That's right, you're not from Texas. Texas wants you anyway. So I was, I was born and raised in Texas, and it means so much to me. And though my girl comes from down in Georgia, we were, were up in, in Tennessee, and as we were driving down the highway, she asked me, baby. So great, how come you're always going on about the lost state? I said, That's right, you're not from Texas. That's right, you're not from Texas. That's right, you're not from Texas. Texas wants you anyway. That's right, you're not from Texas. That's right, you're not from Texas. That's right, you're not from Texas. Texas wants you anyway. Well, Texas is a land of stereotypes for people who aren't from Texas, and, and Texans are very playful people in the sense that they like to play with the stereotypes others have of them. I, I, I don't think I describe Texans over, overconfident, but, they're, but, but they are sure about their, themselves enough not to really take offense and to have a little fun with uh, the visions uh, people have. Your next song is also one of my favorites. It probably would be if I had a top ten list. It's the end of the world, but it's not. But it, it is an REM song. But you pick the Canadian version. Mm-hmm. Uh, Great Big C. Now, as I mentioned to you, I have been reading science fiction my whole life, and I've just always been fascinated by apocalyptic fiction about either you know post-apocalyptic, you know what's like after the downfall of you know everything we know or you know we're doomed the meteor is heading towards towards the um, the, the planet do you think that uh, one of the problems in communicating about climate change is that um, there is a sort of disaster fatigue for mm-hmm. a lot of mm-hmm. folks i mean I, I actually did grow up at a time where i paid attention to the scientific as well as the, the science fiction literature and there was a period in the 70s where there were movies, but also there was science that's saying we were headed towards global cooling, mm-hmm. that we were going to go back to being ice ball Earth. Mm-hmm. Didn't happen. Well, actually, interestingly, we we would be if it wasn't for global warming. We are actually overdue for the next ice age. Isn't that interesting? Well, see, now yeah. that, that's, that's my question, is that... Um, there's complexity both ways. It's like, frankly, can't you know? If, if if I had a lot of money to put into investments, I would put Canadian bonds, Norwegian bonds, and Swedish bonds, because in the world of the future, can can the the, the natural resources that are being opened up in the great north of the world, that are going to be controlled by the northern countries, mm-hmm. right, you know, uh, including Russia, mm-hmm. um, are immense, yeah. and so the economic prosperity of Canada is, I think, you know, assured <laughs> for quite some time uh-huh. if we continue the direction that, that we're going. I mean, maybe it'll catch up at, at, some, at some point, you know, the bad consequences. But it's not all bad, in other words. I mean, if the Earth was a lot hotter 200 million years ago. I mean, there, there It been, was, but, but on the other hand, we weren't around then. That's the problem. And so, really, he, here's the issue. And this, this is an interesting issue that we don't often think about. The issue is not warming or cooling. The issue is that human society today requires a stable climate. Where we have built our cities, how we have designed our roads, the insulation factor in our buildings, where we grow our crops, um, what diseases we're used to handling, all of that is predicated on a stable climate. And I, so, I think that's something really key for us to visualize here because mm-hmm. it's absolutely true that the world has been cooler and the world has been hotter in yes. the past. And, and 
you know, I think about Jared Diamond's book, Collapse, and he wrote about the, the, the Viking colony in Greenland. Mm-hmm. And they, they lucked out by starting out there at a time where there was a, a, a mini warming trend. In that area yeah. only. Yeah. And, yeah. It, mm-hmm. was, it, was just, it was just warmer. Yeah. And so a very marginal area, they were able to grow their crops and, and they had cows and, you know, they lived some sort of somewhat depleted version of what it was like to live in Norway and, and, and Sweden. But then a cooling came along, mm-hmm. and you know we don't know exactly why they died, but star- there's a lot of evidence that basically they starved to death because they just couldn't grow their crops, and their cows died, and they had to eat their dogs, and yeah. you know, who knows what else they ended up eat- eating, but mm-hmm. they died out. And because they were also trapped because they didn't have trees to build a boat to, to leave. I mean, it may- that's probably simplistic, but yeah, we, we can't shift around. 8 billion people easily to say, okay, well, it's, it's true that the, the you can grow better crops in northern Canada, so we'll just move the whole population of Central Africa to northern Canada where they'll grow the better crops. It doesn't uh-huh. work that way exactly. for national borders. Right. right. Yeah. And so to extrapolate that, if we were living 1,000 or 2,000 years ago with the population of the earth at that time, well, you know, if we were living here in Texas, we'd pick up our tents, and we'd move, you know, 100, 200, 1,000 miles in another direction. That would be fine. So the problem is, is that we have this society. I mean, we have two-thirds of the world's largest cities within a few feet of sea level. We can't pick those cities up and move them. And like you said, you and know. And that's why Lubbock will be mm-hmm. the capital of the world one day, right? Yeah, just, we'll have beachfront you know, property maybe. That's right. No, no. Well, no. no. <laughs> so, I mean, right. So, but do invest in Lubbock is what you're saying. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay, yes. Okay. Um, no, so, so, so from that perspective, we have to understand that it's not, again, it's not a, a major warming or a major cooling, like the cooling would be good, the warming would be bad, or vice versa. It's the fact that we don't want change at all. So, interestingly, we should be heading into the next ice age. And if you look at the Earth's temperature before the Industrial Revolution, it was heading into the next ice age. It was the mini ice age of about 1400. It would have kept on going. Yeah. But we, thankfully, stopped that downward trend, and that's a good thing. But we didn't just stop it. We went 10 times further in the opposite direction. So now instead of a slight cooling trend, we have a massive warming trend. And part of the problem is it's just happening too quickly. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. That's great, it starts with an earthquake Birds, snakes, and aeroplanes Lenny Bruce is not afraid I have a hurricane, listen to yourself Turn worlds into its own means Dummies of your own needs Speed it up and not speed, got no speed The ladder starts to clatter with the fear of light down Like fire in a fire, represent the southern gang From the government for hiring a combat site Next to us, I'm coming in a hurry With the furies breathing down your neck Team reporters got the Trump get the ground Look at that low plane, fine Then uh-oh, overflow, population corner Blue blood, it'll lose Save yourself and save yourself Where else in your own need Listen to your heart Tell me that the reds are in the red with the right You patriotic, patriotic, slam fight, right I'm feeling pretty psyched It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it It's the end of the world as we know it I feel fine oh, we're looking at foreign towers, such a marine turn, listen to yourself, journal, a committee, uniform, a book, a burner, but a lemon, every motor, that's the maiden, not a moment, it's in your not a motor, but a kettle, step down, step down, watch your heel, crush, crush, up, all this means, no fear, cavalier, renegade, steer, clear, turn them in, a turn them in, a turn them in, a fly, you are from the solution, the knob from the alternative, and I decline, it's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, it's the end of the world as we know it, I feel fine. 
It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel fine. The other night I took the fine car and took the fine mount, saying in a light lantern, Bernstein lantern, fresh damp, plenty of juice, Mr. Becky, birthday party, cheesecake, the jelly bean boom. Patriotic, patriotic, slam foot, next set, right. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. It's the end of the world as we know it. I feel All right, I, I, I guess let me make one more challenge uh, from a non-scientist. Is that is it ever going to be possible to calibrate the Earth's temperature the way we have our air conditioning set? I've got a digital thermometer, and I guess it's about 76 in, in or 77 in our, in our house, and I set it there, and, you know, the air conditioning goes on, and it goes off. Are we ever going to be able to do that? I mean, aren't we always going to be a little bit too cold or a little bit? I mean, is that what you would, would be optimal, that we're either a little bit too cold or a little bit too hot, but never expecting that there's some set point, you know, like a California spring day where it's it's absolutely perfect. And we just keep it that way forever and ever and ever, right? <laughs> we can't do that with, with a planet. It's too big and too complex, right? Well, um one thing is we have natural variability from year to year, and that's just part of life, but we're already adapted to the natural variability. Like, you know, we have a dry year, we have a wet year, we have a hot summer, we have a cold winter. We're used to that. What we're talking about is over 30, 100, 500 years, can we keep our climate stable? And that's actually something that we don't talk about a lot, but I think one of the most compelling reasons to leave our fossil fuels in the ground to not be burning every single pound of coal that we have and every single bit of natural gas and oil that we have is because in the future, in a thousand years or 2000 years, at that point, the human race might need those to burn to stave off the next ice age. Now, again, we have already staved off the next ice age indefinitely at this point, but because human society prefers a stable planet, we need these types of resources to keep our planet stable in the future. I think that that concept of the stable planet or the equilibrium planet, because mm -hmm. again, we can't you know just always keep it at seventy six everywhere all the time. Mm -hmm. I think it's a very effective one to to talk about because I mm -hmm. think it's easy to say, which is true, that in the short term there will be winners and losers. I mean, it's been it's been a very wet summer here in Lubbock, and I was mm -hmm. reading how the prediction for the winter is going to be a very wet winter, and I was going like, you know, that yeah. would be really interesting if climate change resulted in a wetter. You know, wetter West Texas, uh, much drier California, and wetter West Texas. I mean, mm -hmm. or would we win initially that lottery? You know, mm -hmm. but the stability issue, I think, is one that, that was very important. Now, when you exactly. went to this banquet, uh, you heard your favorite song, "How Great Thou Art," again, but this time sung by Carrie Underwood. I did. Well, interestingly, though, this actually isn't my favorite song because growing up, it's one of those songs that you hear so much that it gets to the point where you're almost like, if I hear that song again, I think I might be ill. So, um, so for a while, I was kind of like, I don't even want to hear that. But now, because I've taken a break from it, again, that song, it really brings up really amazing memories of my childhood, of the, the idea that faith and science are just completely intertwined rather than being two completely different um, train tracks that are often in conflict with each other, as we, we often perceive them to be 
um, you know, when people talk about science and faith. So I would call it not my favorite song, but possibly my most meaningful song in terms of expressing what my life has become. So given that that song really kind of began my life, um, memories of my childhood, um, faith, science, my parents. It was really amazing to me in April when we went to this dinner for the time Top 100, they had a couple of the people who were on the list actually perform. One of the people on the Time Top 100 list was Carrie Underwood, who was, I was amazed to see, just as overwhelmed as I was to be named to this list. But she got up and she performed a couple of her of her hits. And then, much to my surprise, she closed with an a cappella and very heartfelt rendition of How Great Thou Art. And so here I was on the night that was really up to that point, kind of the culmination of, of my career, listening to somebody sing that very song that had begun my childhood, talking about when we look out at this amazing universe that God has created, how awestruck we are, how amazed we are at its beauty and its complexity, and the perspective that that gives us on ourselves, our lives, and us here as humans on this planet. Well, I think anyone who's listening to you now and anyone who will meet you in person senses just the vigor and vim and enthusiasm you have for talking about really important issues that affect everyone. And at the end of the day, that's what we should be professing. You know, whatever opinion you have is that we should be discussing these, we should be studying, we should be making decisions based upon actual factual information, and we should be trying to safeguard our future for, for our, for our yeah. children and our cats and, and for everybody who uh, depends on us. I think... Also the dog lovers. We're not anti-dog. I am. Okay. Yeah, it's my show, so we won't be discussing those. <laughs> I am a cat person, too. Yeah. But, but I think, too, it's yeah. important to say that so often we focus on what divides us. Especially in this day and age, it seems like we're always just focusing on, well, that person says this, but I say that. Or this person believes this, but I believe that. With an issue this big and this important of climate change that affects us here in the place where we live, I think it's essential to focus on what we have in common rather than what divides us. Well, that is a wonderful note to end the show. And thank you very much, Professor Hayhoe, for joining us today. Thank you so much. How great.